Um, nowadays, there's no need to try and convince anyone that um, there's great need for a new and better world, right? There's been so many disruptions. The world's not as any of us would prefer it to be right now, just as we're getting on top of COVID, wars break out, threats of wars break out. It's, there's no need to convince people that we need uh, a new and better world. Um, we face life of disruption, but every so often, something can invade our lives, which is also a disruption, but it's a good disruption. In other words, it comes into our world of chaos and brings us good news. Normally, this is not on at 7 o'clock on your TV. There's no channel that kind of advertises good news. But good news does break into our disruption of, uh, the, uh, and to disrupt our lives. And this is what John is going to get on about. Um, the gospel is this disruption that brings us this incredible news of a kind and benevolent king who has come into our world to disrupt the chaos, to disarm all the principalities and powers of evil, uh, to come and rescue us from the wrath of God that we, we face because of our sins, to die in our place, to be raised to life, and then to call us to eternal life through faith in Him. And, and it's just this incredible, if it wasn't like too good to be true, but it's true news that changes everything. Um, and in this text, we're going to see the kingdoms that are in conflict, what it takes to hear the good news, and a glimpse into the new norm in this beautiful new world. The kingdoms that are in conflict, what, what, remember what Luke's trying to do. When Luke's writing at the, beginning of, at the beginning of this book, you can go back there. He's writing it to a man, and he's trying to say to him, Theophilus is his name, I want you to be really sure about the gospel that you've heard. And you can be really sure about the gospel that you heard. And I'm going to tell you why you can be really sure. And then the rest of Luke is about why he can be really sure about the gospel that he's heard about Jesus. And so Luke keeps grounding uh, this gospel in history. So that you, when you ground something in history, it can be tested. It can be checked. Um, and so time and time again, we've kind of seen how Luke has kind of pointed out things. And that's what he's going to do again. Uh, he says to um, Theophilus and to us, he, he names all these key figures. And I wonder, Chris, if you could put the, the first slide on. This is geographically where Luke goes. He starts at that uh, Judea uh, at the bottom there. He starts right up there. Then he's going to move up to that little grayish circle. Then he's going to move to the right, the blue circle. Then he's going to move up to the red circle. And then he's going to come all the way back down and kind of do this with it uh, as he goes through. And so he names Tiberius in Rome. And who serves him? Well, he starts with Judea. There's Pontius Pilate moving up north to Galilee. This, uh, um, Caesar has Herod. Then he moves northeast. He's got Herod's brother Philip. And then he goes uh, up again, and there's the guy Lysanias. And then he comes all the way down to Caiaphas and, and his father-in-law. Um, you can't have two high priests at the same time. So Caiaphas is the high priest, but Luke says two. The other guy is, is Caiaphas's father-in-law. And Luke would be saying that, Caiaphas, that, that this father-in-law, this figure, is still exerting incredible power uh, over, the, over the Jewish religion. He's not the high priest any longer. Caiaphas is but he has major influence, we, we might as well say his name. Um, and so he's done this kind of circle to show us uh, who's in charge. What Luke's showing us um, is all the political and spiritual players. Th this is the map. 
of John's world and the world that Jesus is going to come into, or is going to start ministering in. Jesus is, is just around the corner. Um, and this is the, the political world and this is the spiritual world that John is coming into. These are the powers at play. These are the influences at play. However you come uh, to life, these are the major figures that you have to um, face up to. Caiaphas was a high priest, and he wasn't much of a spiritual figure. If you, you can show us the next fi- uh, slide, if you will. This is an example that they don't know, but this is an example of what they think Caiaphas's palace looked like. Remember, he's the high priest. He has this palace. You'll notice it doesn't look very Jewish. It looks very Grecian. And what had happened at this stage is that the high priests were of the sect called the Sadducees, and the Sadducees has, had stopped believing in uh, eternal life, in resurrection of life. They'd stopped believing in angels and miracles. Um, and so they'd become this very secular, worldly group of religious leaders in the Jewish church. And these are your high priests. These are your stand between you and God. Um, and they were overcome by the Grecian world. They, they were more interested in Rome, uh, Rome's rulership, than really what God God had called the church to. So this is the this is the picture of the leaders in the church, and then you've got all the political leaders um, as well. In this world, the proud prospered, and the humble were pilfered. So if you had a reason to be proud, if you had some money or some influence or a name or were born into a certain family, you could advance in this world. But if you were a humble person, you were pilfered. You were, uh, your, your life could just be used by all those empowered, in power, yeah. And so right into the, the middle of this world, if you can show us the next slide, this is where John goes and ministers. It's right in the center. Luke tells us that along the area of the Jordan, uh, John comes proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and baptizing. So he comes right into the epicenter of a world ruled by evil, and he starts proclaiming a new kingdom with a new king. That's a little bit dangerous, right? But what I want you to notice is that John hasn't gone to some obscure place. He hasn't gone to kind of the, the outer hills of Perth. Uh, sorry if you're from the outer hills of Perth. <laughs> That's not an obscure place. <laughs> it kind of is, actually. Let's just be honest. Um, he hasn't, gone, he hasn't gone kind of out there. So when we read like, you know, John ministered in the wilderness and that, and we think like, yeah, so people, all people have to kind of leave the world to go and hear John speak. They don't really. They have to go gather at the waterways of the major areas in the place. That's the wilderness. Uh, and that's where people always gather is throughout societies. We've always built societies around water because water is our life source, right? And John goes straight to the water um, that runs straight through the center of this area. And he starts proclaiming the kingdom of God. Um, news of the Savior is wonderful to, for these people. Think about today in our culture um, what it would be like. As I said, John isn't going like, I, I, don't, I don't want to be rude about what's on the outside of Perth or this anti-establishment kind of group. John comes right into the epicenter of, of where life is lived and starts proclaiming this king. So what would that be like in Perth? It might be in the CBD. Uh, there may be some places. There may be some sports clubs. There may be some uh, beaches. 
wherever people move around in our city, those are the kinds of places where John would be going to proclaim the good news of Jesus. This is exciting. And this is a little different. It means that the good news comes into life, into the mainstream of life, the main heartbeat, the main kind of veins, arteries of life where people flow, rather than to kind of this kind of obscure, weird, out there um, kind of cult that you leave life to go hear the good news of Jesus. Um, What does it take to hear this good news? Well, John says each person has to repent. John knew that the Sadducees and the Pharisees and other Jews would be thinking to say to him, but we're Abraham's children. This is what they're counting on. And they were Abraham's biological children. And they're counting on that lineage to be good with God. What what do you, and this isn't rhetorical, I actually want you to answer me. Uh, What do you think people count on today to be good with God? Just, my hearing's not great. You're going to have to say it louder. Works. I'm a good person. I said a prayer once. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Feelings. Yeah. I feel good about this. I'm sure God will as well. Other people are worse. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not that bad. That's church attendance. Yeah. These are great. Keep going. Coming from a Christian family. Brilliant. Please keep them coming because we really need to ground this in our reality. Easy there. (laughs) (laughs) Making a contribution to society. Sacrifices. Giving away money, yeah. Any obvious others that we're missing? God would never reject me me or anyone. If God's a God of love, He can't possibly send me to a place like hell. Okay, I'm going to ask you if if you've heard any of these. So, So it's very good. We've nailed like a lot of the street language philosophy about God, right? If, you, if these are close, like you've got family, friends, uh, or you're sitting next to someone right now who's, who's ever kind of thought this or felt this. I was joking about the sitting next to someone. Uh, we're going to cover each other's uh, weaknesses. Just raise your hand. How close is this? You've, you've experienced something like this. Okay, most of us in this room are raising and saying, yeah, we know someone that actually thinks this way. So John is talking to these Pharisees and Sadducees is preaching the gospel, and he knows that they're going to say what their version of that is, we, we're... We belong to Abraham. We're, we're his children. So God, you know, we're good with God. You can't possibly kick us out of the family. We were literally born into the family. And John says to them, you brood of vipers. I mean, I don't know how you would feel, and I don't know what King's Cross's giving would look like if we started talking to the church that way. I mean, you, you're, most of you in this room are good Australians, so you wouldn't say that much. You would just vote with your feet and stop showing up, or stop serving, or stop that. You just go quietly off into the sunset. You brood of vipers. 
you snakes. Now, think about that for a second. Where, where's the kind of the first time you hear about a snake? <laughs> in the garden, in Eden. And, and what is the snake representative of? Satan. So, he, so they're saying, we are Abraham's children. We're good with God. And he's saying, you are Satan's children. You are nowhere with God. It can't get more dramatic than that, right? To grab their attention. He says there's, there's a way that we come to him. We can't trust the things that we trust. He's saying you trust in, in Abraham's children, that you are Abraham's children. That's not going to get you anywhere. We can't trust in our religion. We can't trust in our good works. We can't trust in our giving. We can't trust in our parents served the church. We can't trust in our church attendance. We can't trust in that we're better, with, that we're better than others. We can't trust in, well, God is loving. He can never send someone to hell. We can't. Those are not things we can trust in. And John says that if God wants to, He can raise for Himself children from stones. That's another kind of insult. Because it's saying, like, you, you think you're, you're all that? You, you think you're that special? Look, if God really wanted to, he could, make a, he could make a child out of a chair, out of a stone, out of a... Look around you. What do you see? They were in this kind of more barren place. He pointed at stones, kind of the most dead thing around them. Look in this room. What is the, most, what is the least impressive thing in this room? Please don't say someone's name. <laughs> What's the least impressive thing in this room? The carpet. The carpet. <laughs> <laughs> and John says... God could raise sons. He could pull them right out of this carpet. It's a humbling statement. So what, what do we actually need? And John says, the one thing that we need is, is this thing that comes about because of humility. And John's going to call it repentance. You need repentance. Repentance is turning around. You know this. So just try to stick with me. Sometimes it's hard to learn anything new around, around things that you've heard a lot about, but try to stick with me. Repentance is this idea of turning around, right? So you change direction, you repent, you go back to God. You need humility in order to repent. In other words, humility is this thing which very few of us have and we struggle for it when we have a little bit of it. Humility is, is changing our mind about being self-centered and choosing to rely on God instead. So we say, humility is depending on someone else, which is God, uh, entirely. So a humble person, when we talk about a humble person, what we're saying is they are God-reliant. The opposite of a humble person is what Chris said, is a proud person. So a proud person, the way that they live is that, and, and, and certainly many of us in this room, and certainly myself, experience this. You either look up to people who are better than you, and you feel insecure, or you look to people who are worse than you and you feel superior. You feel arrogant. Chris pointed out one of the forms, but stuck in the middle is a proud person. You just either have a disposition to look up and feel negative or look down and feel positive. But, but that's a proud person. A humble person looks at Jesus and goes, I'm a sinner. Only He is righteous. And nothing, I will never be righteous enough to save myself. He was the only righteous one uh, I depend on His righteousness. And so in humility, a humble person goes, I depend on you. 
I turn and I'm going to follow Jesus. And John calls that repentance. We're going to come to repentance. But there's people who, who hear this message and who want to repent. They say to John, what are we supposed to do? And it's a wonderful question. And John's answer doesn't give them a way to be saved. Their doing is not going to save them. Their repenting is part of God working in their lives. They haven't yet even encountered Jesus and His cross. In fact, John's going to get confused about Jesus. You're going to see in a little bit, because Jesus doesn't come like John and, and uh, minister in the same way. If John's going, you brood of vipers, Jesus goes and eats with tax collectors. Or, uh, and, and John kind of gets confused about like, hold on, is this guy really the king? Is he really the king of the kingdom? I mean, it just looks a little different to what I expected. And then, and then Jesus says back to John, go tell him. Go tell him what you see, the, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk. Tell him how this guy is turning everything upside down and redeeming and restoring, but, it's, but in a really beautiful way. And they go and report back, and John goes, all right, it is him. I got off track there just a little bit, but what do we do? They say to him. And at this point, they've got one foot, foot out because they, they hear John and they, hear, they want to respond to John and they're getting baptized and they're, they're preparing the way. And remember what the prophecy said, the hills are going to come down and the valleys are going to go up and, and the crooked are going to be made straight. In other words, people's lives are going to start lining up. The proud are going to come down. The wicked are going to kind of straighten their ways to prepare a way for the Lord. In other words, these, these ways of living... Make a way for the king to come in. And it's very practical. What can I do? Uh, Chris, can you show me the next slide? He says to the crowd, give out of your abundance. He says to the tax collectors, be fair. He said to the soldiers, be content. The soldiers didn't earn very much. In fact, they were given like a kind of housing and food and then a little bit of pocket change just to kind of buy some other things with it. So they could, the soldiers could take their positions and manipulate people to give them money and, and tell lies about people to kind of threaten them and, and get money. And John says, don't do that. Just be content with the little that you have. Be happy with your station in life. To the tax collectors who could take, the way the tax collectors could get wealthy is they'd take what Rome required, but then they could take more for themselves. And the crowd. Hey, if you've got two tunics, give one to someone who's got none. If you've got extra food, give some to someone who doesn't have food. It's very practical. What does your life look like? And what does the kingdom look like in your life? And John's saying, take the life that you have and make it sh shape it around repentance. Take what repentance is. Take your life. Repentance is turning around, pointing to God, saying, God, I want in. I, I trust you. And then John says, take your life and just shape it. Take the crooked and, and make it straight and make a way for the king. In all, uh, what does it mean for you? No one in this room, I don't think, is a tax collector. You certainly are part of the crowd. 
and we don't have soldiers, but we do have people who aren't paid as well as other people. What does it look like in your world, in your job, to live a life of repentance? So what John has done is he's kind of shown us a way and said, look, this world, God has created this world. It's not as it should be. We've fallen. The, the world doesn't look like it's, it's chaos. And it's, God's brought good news into the chaos. And God has redeemed the world through Jesus Christ. What does restoration look like? looks like his new kingdom. What does his reign look like in, in your world and my world? What does it look like for an accountant to bring the kingdom into his office? What does it look like for a doctor to bring the kingdom of God into the hospital? What does it look like for a patient to bring the kingdom of God into the hospital? What does it look like when you're driving your car, when you're teaching, when you're running a business? What does the kingdom of God look like? So we repent in order to depend on Jesus. We repent in any way that we discover we're not repenting, uh, we're not depending on Jesus. Or we repent of where we see we're chasing after other things uh, that aren't what Jesus wants for us. So it's okay to have a life of repentance. As, as John pointed out, you have this one like kind of repentance prayer and then you think we live on that forever. Um, bad idea rather a lifestyle of repentance as we walk with the King and we walk in the kingdom and we learn to depend on Him more and more. Because if I have a one-time repentance, I'm going to live very insecure when I argue with my wife and go, if I really did repent and turn, why am I arguing with my wife? Why am I such a douchebag? But rather as I walk with Jesus and go, Man, I argued with my wife. I can repent of that and come back to her and say, I, I really know God wants me to love you like Christ loves the church. And I'm doing a terrible example of that. Could you please forgive me? There's repentance. Can we let the kingdom back into our marriage? Can we let the king on his throne again of our marriage? Or my children get insecure if... I, I impatient or irritated or irritable. I go, whoa, what kind of a Christian am I? You terrible dad. Or I'm able to come to them, a lifestyle of repentance, of walking with the king, being able to say, kids, I've been very impatient. And that's not at all what God is like. And that's not what his kingdom is like. That's not where he rules and reigns and the fruit of the Spirit are the only fruit there. You won't find that. You'll find patience and kindness and love and goodness. Can we bring the kingdom back into this moment? Can you forgive me? Repentance allows us to turn and to make a way for the king to come in. And so we repent to participate in Jesus' unfolding reign. Repentance gives an opportunity for Christ to come and do something. 
In other words, all these things that these people, you know, the tax collectors could be fair, it gives an opportunity for the king to come in, for the tunics to be shared. It gives an opportunity for the king to come in, for the soldiers to be content, provides an opportunity for the king to come in. And as we respond to Jesus and the good news and adjust our lives, the crooked made straight, the heels brought low, the proud turning in humility to Christ, our life becomes an opportunity for the King to come in. What is your world? What, maybe you're a student at school. Maybe you're a teacher at school. Like I said, maybe you're a doctor in the hospital. Maybe you're a patient in the hospital. Maybe you're, you're maybe in a mother's group. Maybe you never or hardly leave the house. What's your story? And how does your life give an opportunity for the king to come in? What does it look like to enter what does it look like to enter your world as a member of Jesus' kingdom? When I think about my life, I, I think I'm, a, I'm in a family, so I'm a son, I'm a brother, I'm a husband, I'm a father. I'm in a church, so again, I'm a brother, I'm a pastor, I'm a student, so I'm a participator, I'm a learner. I have money, I have time, I have influence. What does it look like for the king to reign over my situation, practically. Remember, we get back to the, it's so practical. What does it look like for the king to reign in my life? What does it look like for the king to reign in your life? As we kind of scan through our lives, and we think about the different hats that we wear, the kingdom of God, uh, I don't have glasses like Josh, although I realize you, you hold them, you don't wear them, although you're wearing them now. So, the kingdom of God is like a pair of glasses that you put on and they change everything. Do you know like those polarized lenses? You can't like see, you, I've, I've seen it before, it's quite amazing. But you can't like really look at, at this landscape and then you put on a pair of polarized lenses and it just changes, you can, you can look at it firstly. You see different colors. You see different things that weren't there before. The kingdom of God is like putting on a pair of lenses. It's a world view. Do you know what a world... I mean, most of you know what a world view is. Everyone has a world view. It's the way they view the world. It's the beliefs and values that they live by according to their world view. You have a world view, whether you know it or not. And the kingdom of God is like a world view that you put on and you see life the way Jesus sees life. You see your job the way Jesus sees your job. You see time and money and resources the way Jesus sees time, money, and resources. You see your family and your employer or your employees or uh, your teacher or your students or your patients or your doctor the way Jesus sees those things. And you learn to live in accordance with the way that the king sees things. Does, does that make, make sense? And so when we scan our lives and we see there's something in our lives, a moment or a belief or a value or a habit 
that isn't the way that the king sees things, that's, we can repent of that and go, all oh, right, uh, this is something, God, I, I would like to turn from and turn to you. Can you help me make straight those paths, bring down the, valley, uh, bring down the hills, raise the valleys in my life, and let the king come in into this? I have this fear. Whoa. I'm anxious about this. Hold on. I find that I'm irritable about that, or I have a habit of this. God, the king needs to come in. I need to turn. I'm almost done. Two minutes. I want you to imagine something with me. What does it look like for the, uh, the kingdom? What does life look like when the kingdom of God comes? Just imagine. Just imagine us in this room and imagine other churches gathering. Imagine just us going back to work. Nothing special, nothing more. Just going back into your life with the kingdom of God as your world view. Every opportunity, an opportunity to let the king come in. Sorry, this action I keep doing is the paths make going straight. I don't, I don't know why this is paths going straight, but it feels like a dance move. You just can't hear the beat. The paths being straightened, the king coming in. Every opportunity you face this week at work, at home, is an opportunity for the king to come in. At school, what does it look like? Because aunt's a teacher at a high school, my son's a student at a high school. It looks very different. Similar place. Very different. Some of you have been patients. Some of you are doctors. Same place. You might meet each other, but it's going to look very different. Some of you work for someone. Some of you have employees. What does it look like for the king to come in? To give opportunity for Jesus to be, the good news to be on display. As I've thought about this, I've realized that you can, you can put it up. This is what it looks like. It looks like people who are constantly pushing back the darkness by placing Jesus above all and others before me. I know that's our motto. I know we put that on everything. But there's a reason for that. It's because when the gospel grips our hearts, we receive all that we need from Christ and He begins to shape us and change us as we enter whatever our world is, whatever our space is. And that's, the, again, the beauty of the gospel is you don't have to be like, what am I supposed to do now? Go back into your life. That's what you're supposed to do. Go back into your world. And wherever we go, Whenever Jesus is, is king of the moment or king of the exercise or the time, what we'll discover is that we'll push back the darkness. That Jesus will be above all and that others will be above, before, us, before me. What does it look like in high school? I was in high school once, a very long time ago, for the high school students here. 
I know what it's like and, and you arrive on campus and you think, oh, it's so important to be cool, so important to be liked, so important to be in. Do anything. What does it look, arriving on the campus thinking, how can the king come in today? How can I bring the light? As Jesus is placed above all, above all the approval of others, above all the opinions of others, His love for you, His heart for you, His sacrifice for you, His hope for you, His dreams for you, His will for you, His plans for you, are placed above all, all others. You're empowered and equipped to turn around and instead of looking at others for your approval, for your acceptance, you can look at others and go, who are the ones that are disenfranchised? Who are the ones that are hurting? Who are the ones that I can pull in? Who are the ones I can grab onto? Changes things. Just using high school as an example. But when repentance is part of our lifestyle, we, I can imagine a world where we push back the darkness by placing Jesus above all and others before me. Like people walking around with flashlights on our heads. Wherever we go, we bring in the light. And when the light flickers and dim and it goes out, we maybe need to just don't bash your head. I'm just joking. Just pause. God, I'm sorry. Can you help me to turn back to you? To put this off and to put that on? To bring back an opportunity for the king to come in? Let me pray.